Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. As some of you may know, over the past couple of years, I've done several webinars and video lectures on a variety of topics that also come up on this podcast. There is unfortunately a lack of qualified therapists who specialize in working with cult survivors and their concerned family members. Since I can only see a finite number of clients myself, I wanted to share insights from my 30 plus years of doing this work with as many people as possible. So, in pursuit of that goal, I've made all of my recent video lectures available on my website, rachelbernsteintherapy.com. You can find a link to the page in the show notes of this episode. There you'll find my lecture from the most recent conference of the International Cultic Studies Association, my Living in Freedom series for survivors and their family members, and my recent lecture entitled, Why Did I Stay?, which examines the many reasons people have difficulty leaving high-control groups and relationships. Today on the show, we have David Hayward, a.k.a. The Naked Pastor. He's a former pastor turned artist and author whose work encourages seeking one's authentic self and religious deconstruction and freedom of thought. He holds a master's degree in theological studies as well as diplomas in religious studies and ministry. David resides in eastern coastal Canada, where the natural surroundings have helped him to find inner peace within the natural world as he pursues his art full-time, which he has done for the past decade. The idea of Naked Pastor has since grown into a diverse global community of independent thinkers who support each other on their journey to personal spiritual freedom. Committed to truth, authenticity, and understanding, he supports LGBTQ people and groups and BIPOC, and he encourages his fans to do the same. David is probably best known for his cartoons, which, in their powerful simplicity, speak louder than words and go straight to the heart. Through these cartoons, he challenges problematic norms in religious spaces and in life in general. They inspire, they provoke, and start difficult conversations. You can find David's cartoons, art, books, and newsletter on his website, www.nakedpastor.com, where David is offering a 10% discount to our listeners. Just use the discount code PODCAST, in caps, at checkout. And make sure to check out his IG page linked in the show notes to scroll through his many inspiring and often hilarious cartoons. Here's David now. So today I have the special treat being able to speak with David Hayward, also known as Naked Pastor. And I love that name, um, and I love when I was reading about your explanation for it, which we'll talk more about, but really about being able to be you, fully you, and how lovely that is. And I'm happy for this part of your life, and I get to meet you during this part of your life. And so if you don't mind taking a moment to introduce yourself to the listeners, then we'll start talking. 
Sure. Uh, my name is David Hayward, but most people may not know who that is. But I have uh, an online presence called Naked Pastor, and maybe more of you have heard of that. And uh, thank you, Rachel, for having me on your show. And I'm glad to be here uh, to share my story and any questions that anybody might have for me. You know, what's really nice about you being able to go into your life as an artist is a really beautiful thing. There are many people I've worked with over the last 32 years in this field who gave up their art or never realized that they had it in them because it just wasn't given value. Um, There wasn't time to just sit and create and have quiet and reflect. And that there are plenty of people I've worked with who raised in very fundamentalist kinds of places would sometimes be punished for what they would create with art because it wasn't following certain confines. And even more extreme stories of kids getting punished for imagining and doing something different. I remember one time working with kids who had just come off a compound and they came to my office and I handed them paper and crayons and pens and just as I would do to help kids feel comfortable in a space. And even though they were all facing different directions, one was sitting on the floor at this little coffee table I have and another one was in a chair facing the wall. They just found their own spaces. When the session was over, they had all drawn the same thing. They had drawn variations of demons. That was the only thing they were allowed to draw. They had to kind of draw the things they were most afraid of. And the pastor had told them that they, if they had an opportunity to draw anything, it needed to be demons. So to reinforce how they had to stay in line so they wouldn't be attacked by these demons. It's such a crime, I think, to take away people's ability for self-expression. But I also understand why it threatens someone who wants total control over you because your creativity can take you anywhere. So I would love to hear about your background, just sort of what brought you into being a pastor to begin with and what it was like for you at the beginning and then when things started to change. So, yeah, you've aroused my curiosity there. This was a Christian compound? Yeah, it was a group run by Tony Alamo. And, you know, they all lived in this communal setting on a compound. And he was, I mean, he was guilty of many crimes. In fact, he died in jail as well it should have been. But um, so he was not aligned with any mainstream anything. He was, it was his own creation, as a lot of these fringe groups are. My experience growing up was quite different um, because my father was an artist and I was around art all the time. I, I watched him paint and draw all the time. So I don't ever remember not drawing or sketching or, or painting or whatever. It's, it's been a part of my entire life. It was more um, central to my life as a child and even as a teenager. But then as we got deeper and deeper into church activities, they tend to take over (laughs) everything else. I don't know if anybody knows what I'm talking about, but when you're a part of very active churches that demand sort of a global influence in your life, then all kinds of things get squeezed out that are usually considered normal. And healthy part of human living. 
and so my art kind of didn't take the back seat, but it was shoved off to the sidelines a little bit because the priority was, of course, to focus on God and and to focus on the community, the church, and all the activities that took place therein. You know, and then I went off to Bible college as a musician at the time, but I switched majors to Bible and theology, graduated with a Bible and theology degree. Then I went to get my master's in New Testament studies at a seminary. My goal eventually was to become a New Testament scholar. Uh, started my PhD at University of Toronto, and then we got pregnant. Uh, we decided we couldn't continue in that um, on that road for the time being, and I was offered something that I couldn't turn down, and that was to be a, a student pastor of some struggling uh, rural churches. And I did that. Long story short, I ended up getting ordained and becoming a pastor. So it was. It was that's how I ended up in the ministry. So I always struggled with, uh, you know, a sense of call to the ministry. I knew people who felt a strong calling to the ministry. I was never sure of that, and I struggled with that all the way through. Um, and in the meantime, I'm doing art on the side, and I'm selling some art here and there and showing in some galleries here and there and stuff like that. And eventually, I decided to take up cartooning. I started Naked Pastor. And eventually, when I, I left the ministry in 2010, I decided to put all of my efforts into Naked Pastor, my cartoons and my art and books, etc. And that's what I've been doing ever since. I'm curious about what spoke to you about working in these rural settings. I feel like I was a, a good pastor, conscientious. I took it seriously. I wanted to be a good pastor. Uh, I care about people and their spiritual journeys. So, and one of my big influences was Eugene Peterson, who was a, a pastor himself, wrote many books, one of them including The Message, his translation of the Bible. And, um, you know, he pastored a church for, I think, over 25 or 30 years. And he was an inspiration to me. I'd, I'd met him a couple times, had conversations with him. So he was a great inspiration to me on how to be a good pastor. And I found his ideas about how to be a good pastor work really well in rural settings in small churches. And so I tended that way for the first bit. And then I was invited to plant a church at one time. And uh, I did that. And then from there, I became a, a vineyard pastor of a, in, a, in, a, in a city. And, and so that was a larger congregation that I served from about 96 to when I left the ministry in 2010. Ah, so you've had different experiences with lots of different settings. Yeah, I call myself my own ecumenical movement because I've been in so <laughs> many denominations. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And so, yeah, there are a lot of people who might not understand about the different denominations and what are some of the, the major differences. I I think it's interesting to see how sometimes when uh, a religion is able to continue from generation to generation. It's because they have different denominations at times that speak to different people for different reasons. And so I wonder just about all the different belief systems, if there are some of the teachings, good, bad, anywhere in between that have sort of stayed with you that you still think about. So I was 
baptized as an Anglican when I was a baby. And I'm, I'm in Canada. I'm Canadian, by the way. So for people who may not know what Anglican is, I know there's Anglican in the U.S., but uh, it'd be comparative to Episcopal. So I was baptized Anglican, but my father was a, a police officer, was transferred around Ontario and Canada quite a bit. And so we ended up just going to whatever church was convenient or the one we liked the most, and we weren't necessarily uh, devoted to any one denomination. And we ended up in a Baptist church, and then we switched from there to a Pentecostal church. And then I ended up, when I went to a seminary, and thereafter becoming in- interested in Reformed theology, which you know landed me in the Presbyterian church. And then finally in the Vineyard, which is quite a stretch for some people. They're like, how did you end up from there to there? Because Presbyterian would be considered mainline and um, pretty orthodox, standard, kind of what people would think of as a church. And then Vineyard is more evangelical, you know, contemporary music, you know, relaxed dress, you know, kind of stuff. But um, what I found for me personally, because I wasn't devoted to any one denomination in particular, I felt free to go to churches I felt I had the room to grow and and be myself. And so I wasn't necessarily attracted to any kind of polity or theology or anything. I, I was looking more for places where I felt there was room for me to grow and explore my own spiritual journey. And as a result, you know, the many streams of ideas that have informed my life come from all kinds of denominations. I got spiritual direction from Roman Catholic sisters and and monks and Buddhists and Sufis and, you know, on and on and on. So my, there's all kinds of influences in my life uh, because what was most important to me was my own personal growth so that I could serve others well. And so that was kind of my style of ministry was providing a safe place for people to discover, explore, and live out their own spirituality. I like that you were able to avail yourself of many different belief systems and traditions and teachers. Having different teachers, I think, is really important. It's one of the things I think that really sets cults apart from other groups because there's only one teacher in cult. I remember one time uh, going to visit a group that I consider to be a cult, although they're very litigious, so I won't mention, mention their name. There are a few of those that are litigious. And luckily, their numbers are dwindling. Um, but I remember walking in, and you know sometimes that something is more of a business than anything else when the entrance takes you right into a gift shop. <laughs> and then you have to go through all the way through the gift shop with people there saying, hey, would you like to take a look at this? Would you like to buy this? Would you, you know, like, they won't, don't leave you alone. Or can you put your name on a mailing list if you're not willing to buy something at this point? So they're just getting your information uh, before you can even go in and meet anyone there. And all of the books and the videos that they had were all by the same person, this one man. And so if I was unclear about this being more cult-like, I knew once I saw his picture on everything, only his, as though he is the only one who could teach people. And so it's really wonderful, I think, to be able to learn from other people. 
I think also there is this idea with some kind of more cultic groups that it feels competitive that we have the truth and we're the only ones and we have the answer. Years ago, and I mentioned this one time on the podcast a while back, I went to a, a conference, a cult-related conference, and they had breakout groups and there was a support group for people who had been in Bible-based cultic groups. And one of the men there, just as he volunteered to make these buttons that people put on, and it said, my God can beat up your God. Just to kind of bring home this point of let's not even, like, this is ridiculous. Everyone can believe what they want to believe. It's not a competition. But that's, he was raised with that notion of, you know, we're better than you. But a lot of people are. And so how were you able to find your way without kind of putting things up or down on any kind of a pedestal, but just seeing everything as offering you the possibility of teaching? That's a really, really good and a really important question because uh, when I really started questioning my beliefs and the beliefs that I'd inherited, that I was being taught, and that I adopted, I thought as my own, were all Bible based. Like, so I was heavy, heavy, heavy into the Bible. I still have my Bible from when I was a teenager all underlined in different colored crayon, uh, colored pencils and, you know, writing in the margins. And I was a Bible fanatic. And so I went to Bible college. And then from there, I went to study, you know, New Testament and Old Testament. I, I, I got a few years of Hebrew, several years of Greek, biblical Hebrew, biblical Greek, uh, even Aramaic, even though there's only one chapter in the whole Bible that's Aramaic in Daniel. And then I was heading for my PhD in New Testament studies. Like I was full on Bible based. And when I was graduating though from seminary, it was my graduation day. I actually was freaking out because I suddenly realized I wasn't sure of the inspiration of scripture. And of course, to me, that was absolutely devastating because my whole belief system rested upon the Bible, everything. And so when that was pulled out, uh, the whole tower started to wobble. And uh, that happened when I was a young man, and it took 30 years for me to finally find some peace. So in, in the meantime, though, during that 30 years, I was a pastor and preaching and teaching from the Bible, all the while knowing we don't have a cornerstone on the truth. I felt that, and I knew that, but I couldn't prove it. And I was living in a culture, a religious culture, Christian culture, church culture, that believed that we we're right, very binary, right, wrong, in, out, holy, unholy, sacred, secular, biblical, non-biblical, righteous, unrighteous, you know, all those things, sinner, saint, everything. And I struggled with that duality all the way through, refusing to buy in, but yet living in that kind of a culture it was very, very anxiety-provoking. Like, I, I was struggling theologically, how to make sense of this. And then in 2009, I had this profound moment when I just saw the oneness of everything. I just had this sort of a, a moment. I don't, I don't know how to describe it because I don't want people to think I had a vision or a revelation or anything like that. It was just this profound moment when I, I realized there's just one reality, but everybody has their own take on it. Everybody has their own way of understanding it. And everybody has their own way of trying to explain it. Everybody. 
There's one reality, billions of interpretations of that reality. And when I saw that, it, I immediately felt this peace of mind. It was like a, a thousand-piece puzzle. Didn't make any sense until that last piece clicked in and, and there was the picture. I mean, the peace of mind that came upon me at that moment was so profound, and it stayed with me ever since. It was just realizing that we're all one, even though our ideas might be different. There's one reality, and we're all a part of that one reality, that deep underlying unity. And so for me, from then on, it was like I kind of felt this is beautiful. We're, we're all one. You know, nobody has a corner on the truth. We're all searching for the truth. And it's, I think, an error, a mistake to fall into one rut and stay there. I'm not saying all roads lead to heaven. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is there is no road. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, we're here and, and let's deal with it. That, that sense of oneness and that sense of unity and the prevalence of love and, and all that as a, as the air we breathe totally brought that peace of mind to me and brought that sense of not needing to judge whether that person's right or wrong or in or out or holy or unholy or a part of the group or not a part of the group, all that kind of thing. And and that's why my message, you know, when I'm constantly sharing my my thoughts on the, the we're all one uh, and we should all be inclusive. We all, should all be affirming we should all be encouraging one another and and um that love prevails and i don't think the road to that realization comes from being dogmatic about a certain belief system uh you so it's kind of like i live on a river a big river and it's fed by many many streams and springs and it feeds out into the ocean i live near the atlantic ocean and so we call it the Kennebecasis River, but that river is full of all kinds of streams and waters and springs and feeds, and and yet it's that one river. And that's how I view the the human race. You know, we're very diverse, complex, all kinds of streams. Even me, myself, and you, we have many streams flowing through us. I mean, there's just one me, but. I'm very complex, I'm very diverse, and it's not only impossible, it's unhelpful to cling to one dogma. Right. Oh, I love that. I love that idea of some kind of body, I mean, even the body of water, right? A body being fed, being enriched, and then feeding something else. But then being a combination of different kinds of waters and then the infusion of different kinds of minerals and sea life and whatever else, that's really fascinating. I love that analogy too, because it just, it's a great picture of how complex I am, how complex you are, how much has gone into making us who we are. And, and it's that way with the human race as well. And if we could appreciate that, I think it would um, eliminate a lot of division. The only division is in our minds. It's ideas. Like, we're one. I believe we're one. It's only ideas that seem to separate us. Oh, that's really, really, really cool. So I'm wondering, um, again, still leading up to you making this transition out, but I think for a lot of people, again, who I talk to, 
Moving out of a system that offers the answers is very difficult. And suddenly you can have those moments like you're describing, well, if if the Bible isn't the Word of God necessarily, then what? And then, yes, is it like this house of cards or is there another way to look at it that's also going to help me make sense of this and have an answer for it? Uh, it might be my own, but it's still an answer. I think about coming from my tradition, the Jewish tradition, where there isn't always an answer, that what matters is sometimes asking the question. And then frustratingly, for people who are used to the answer, sometimes a question is answered with another question. But there's a reason, I think, for that. And then it's kind of open. And what do you think of it? It's like the whole Talmud being based on that. It's like one bit of text from the Bible. And then all of these different, if you look at a page of Talmud, you'll see that different rabbis, I mean, at the time, of course, only men, and now it would be, it would look different, but they all have their way of interpreting that, that biblical passage. And I remember t- going over a page of Talmud with someone who was converting to Judaism. And, and she said to me, where is the answer key? Like, where is it in the back where it says, you know, once you've sort of gone over what everyone thinks of this, then here is the answer. And I said, oh, no, actually, no, there isn't one. It was, And I hadn't even realized that, that that was distinctive. But it was it was hard for her because it felt like she could then get it wrong, like there was a right or wrong. And I'm sh- I know with more orthodoxy, there is going to be more of a right or wrong. But what has the process been like for you, I think, to be able to find another answer and to feel okay with that answer, even if it's just yours? The Jewish tradition has had a huge influence in my life as well. And yeah, the, the questioning thing, it's big, it's practiced. And even in the Christian tradition, I think there's a story in Maybe it's Luke, where Mary and Joseph lose Jesus as a child. They go back and find him in the temple, and the elders were amazed at his wisdom because of the questions he was asking. And how Jewish can you get? Like, seriously, it's a Jewish practice to ask the questions. And like Chaim Potok, he talks about that, and Abraham Heschel, and, and all these Jewish scholars who have been such an inspiration to me and the value of questioning and having that open mind. And often, you know, where questions are answered with questions, I just love that. In fact, one of my books that I wrote is called Questions Are the Answer. That's been my method. And uh, thanks to the Jewish tradition for encouraging me in that way. But, you know, for me, I, I remember being a young pastor in the Christian church and being very curious and realizing I couldn't find, I was struggling to know what the truth was. This was after I had that devastating realization. I didn't think the Bible was just dropped out of heaven, like a divine document. And realizing that how we tend to live in theological ghettos, like a bubble, we kind of try to find the answer in, inside of that bubble, and but the answer is outside of the walls. Like it's beyond what's prescribed as orthodoxy. And so I remember sneaking away to uh, a university nearby its library and reading like Buddhist stuff. And, you know, that's when I got in touch with Abraham Heschel's book, The Prophets, and Krishnamurti, an Eastern philosopher, and others. And I remember another pastor coming up behind me 
noticed what I was reading and said, you don't need to be reading that stuff. There's enough. We have plenty of material in, in the church, in Christianity. And I was being scolded as a 25 or 26-year-old young pastor that I was reading outside the lines. That's how my journey started, like after this devastating realization that the Bible wasn't the one and only vehicle of truth. I'm not saying it's not a vehicle of truth or, a, you know, it, I think the Bible has a lot to say that's truthful, but that there's other stories and other sources and other streams. And I was really, really curious. I wanted to know what they were. And so I was reading, and I started with Judaism because I thought, okay, here, I actually had a plan. I wrote it down in my journal. I'm going to start with Christianity, then I'm going to go to the unorthodox Christianity, like the mystics, like Meister Eckhart and so on. That led me to Thomas Merton. That led me to Eastern, um, Thomas Merton being a Trappist monk. Uh, who was interested in Zen Buddhism, Buddhism, and I started reading Zen and Zen Buddhism, and then that led me to, you know, Krishnamurti, and then that led me to Sufism, and then you know, on and on and on it went, and I just was like, you know, so this was all during a time when I realized, okay, there isn't just, we don't have a corner on the truth, on the market of truth, what is it? And so I was looking everywhere, I was sort of a frantic search for what was true over those 30 years in the ministry and just looking and reading everywhere right oh you you're you devour information don't you in research it's really fascinating i and also i wasn't expecting that the conversation with the naked pastor would take me along some jewish geography but here um you mentioned Chaim Potok and Abraham Joshua Heschel and Chaim Potok's daughter and I were uh, counselors at a Jewish summer camp one summer, and she was fascinating. Very bright woman, very very bright. So we got to I got to know a little bit about his his family, and it's I haven't actually read the promise. I read the chosen, and then before I went on to high school, the elementary school I went to is called um, Heschel Day School, named after Heschel. And because of his philosophy, because he he marched with Martin Luther King Jr., it was it was a place that was teaching about kind of love thy neighbor as thyself. And his daughter, Susanna, was my daughter's teacher at university last year. And so it's like from generation to generation, it's really quite beautiful. So I love that you mentioned both these people. You know, and and Abraham Heschel. And Thomas Merton corresponded and actually met in the back of a taxi. <laughs> really? <laughs> and had a conversation. Yeah. So, like, that's what's interesting to me is that I sort of see it like a spoke in the wheel where there's a unity at the center, but the spokes go off. And that's, say, a denomination or a, or a school of thought or theology. And it goes off until the, the further it gets away from the center, the more dogmatic it gets and exclusive. The more to the center it gets, the more inclusive it must become. So that you get, like with Christianity, you get mystical Christianity, like Meister Eckhart or, say, Thomas Merton or Henry Nouwen or others like that. With Judaism, you know, the Hasidic Jews. Uh, with Islam, you've got Sufism, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so at the center, they start sounding the same from all these different strains and they're all friends because they they're speaking the same kind of language 
that to me is so fascinating. And that's, that's where I was trying to get from the, I was way out on the spoke in Christianity and Christian culture and church culture. And I, I felt like I was getting closer and closer to the hub where there's a common language, even quantum physicists are, are it all kind of sounds the same. Like Krishnamurti, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's an Eastern philosopher. And um, David Bohm, who is a quantum physicist, one of the most famous quantum physicists, were friends. And they spoke together and they have interviews and they've, they've got published interviews and all this kind of thing. Because when you get close to that hub, there's a unity that is a manifestation of what I think is, is the real unity, but it's a manifestation that manifests in language and the fellowship that's there. So it's, it's fascinating that, you know, this connection to Abraham Heschel and his children and so on, it's just, yeah, it blows my mind. I love that. I would love to be a fly on the wall, even in that taxi cab, just, you know, just hearing them go back and forth, just people who are so bright, so learned, so introspective also. Yes, yes, yes. So then, so here you come from this very rich tradition and having been exposed to different traditions within a tradition. And then you said that you left in 2010. So what started happening for you? So, like I said before, my driving force, I think, even as as I was a child, I remember being criticized or judged for being different. Uh, but I, I wasn't being different. I was just being me, <laughs> and I it was being interpreted as being different or difficult or brooding or you know whatever. I, so I think that sense of I need the space to be free to be my authentic self has always been a driving force in my life. And so that, fast forward, I'm in the church, one of the most difficult places to be your authentic self, my opinion. And it's hard to find safe places in the church to be your authentic self. There are spaces, I grant you that, but they're difficult, hard to find. That's why I happen to gravitate to different churches where I could intuit, uh, am I going to be welcomed as I am, and do I have room to grow? And my last church I was in, I felt I had that space. But in 2009, I had that profound moment, as I mentioned, where I saw the unity of everything and we're all connected. And, you know, it's just language, just words and ideas that seem to separate us and everything. For me, it was a profound peace-giving moment. And I naively, I'm kind of naive this way, I kind of naively shared with people what I was experiencing because I had a blog, nakedpastor.com, and I was sharing on my blog. And well, people started hearing about it. Up until that point, I was pretty much flying under the radar, but people started hearing about it and reporting me to like head office. And I started getting, you know, letters of concern and phone calls. And eventually it got to the point where they suggested me running all of my posts through them first. And it was like, I saw the writing on the wall. And sure enough, within a year, I, I realized if I want to still experience that freedom to be my authentic self, then I'm going to have to leave. And I did. It was a year later when I left and decided the church will be better without me at this point, and I'll be better without the church. And so I I did leave. And when you say the church would be better without me, what do you mean by that? Because I I still cared for the church. It was a wonderful church. I had a wonderful leadership team, wonderful people. We had a wonderful sense of community and so on. But I was, I guess, pushing the limits of what people understood to be what a pastor should be and what a pastor should believe. 
And, um, you know, I even had people sitting down across from my desk in my pastor studying saying, look, we pay you to tell us what to believe. And I knew, you know, that's not me. And that's not the kind of pastoral leadership I want to live. I'd rather you find out what you believe. You have the right to be your own kind of spiritual. And uh, I don't want to have to dictate that to you. So um, that's, and I knew it was it was time for me to go f- for the sake of that church, on the one hand. If I stayed too much longer, it might have caused too much disruption. We might have lost people. And it might have caused too much of a row. And within the denomination I was in, I didn't want it to be targeted. So, and then on the other hand, it was my own personal happiness and sense of freedom that I needed to leave. So it was a mutual agreement. We framed it as, and this is accurate, but we framed it that we were no longer theologically compatible. (laughs) And um, uh, that's a short way of saying, I didn't think there was a box, but I discovered there was a box. I was in a box and I needed to get out of that box. So I I made the decision one evening and I did. And uh, it was only a few weeks later I was gone. So interesting because it takes, I think it takes a lot of bravery to step out, uh, not knowing what your world is going to be like, um, but knowing that still you're compelled and that you feel that you have to give it a shot. Yeah, that's an understatement. But yeah, I mean, I help people now. Some people still consider me acting in a pastoral kind of a role for people, but online, not locally, where um, I'm helping people move from their point A to their point B spiritually. And so the biggest pain point for most people who leave the church is loneliness and the, the huge risk they know they're taking by um, making a decision to leave a community that they no longer feel safe in or at home in and uh that they no longer have space to grow uh it's it is like lisa and i we had been my wife and i we'd been together in the church for so long decades together working together in the church and of all the things we've gone through leaving the church was the most difficult traumatic not only personally but on our relationship and and everything because our lives dramatically changed after that you know not only did i lose my sense of vocation and income, but also my my sense of meaning. What am I going to do with my life? Uh, my sense of destiny, you know. But also, we lost our friends and lost our, my income. It's huge for people to leave a community, even if it's an abusive community. It's, it's like a, a woman in an abusive relationship. They know that even as horrible as life is, the risk of leaving and the reality of what lies after the loneliness, the, you know, needing to be independent and self-supporting all those kinds of things is very frightening. And it's the same thing with people who leave abusive or confining communities. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. And what about your families? Well, fortunately we, we have three kids that are adults, but they were adults at the time. And, you know, uh, we raised our kids in a way that we wanted them to be themselves as well um, and always provided the space for them to discover and to live their own authentic selves and, and to be themselves. 
live their own lives, be the captain of their own ship and the master of their own destiny and be at the steering wheel of their own lives. So by the time we left the ministry, they were they were already young adults and mostly, well, yeah, they'd left home already and were on their own paths. And so uh, to, to them, it wasn't a surprise at all. And they they all had developed a cautious, let's say, relationship to the church because they lived on the inside, right? And they saw firsthand. It took us a few years to figure out how to navigate post-church. It was it was a hard one. I'm sure very hard. And it's hard, you know, whenever a, a couple, even a strong couple, needs to go through something and you upset the apple cart, the balance is off, the relationship is different. And and it is quite a trial to remember to lean in to each other as opposed to lean away because of your stress. Yeah, I mean, I thought I was doing fine, but the fact was I wasn't feeling anything because my coping mechanism, I'm getting personal here. I hope that's okay. That's fine. My, there's fight, <laughs> flight, or freeze. And so freeze is my preferred coping mechanism. And um, one day Lisa said, you know what? You, you need therapy. <laughs> <laughs> so so i was like i i it kind of hit me like a pail of cold water it was like you know i think you're right so i took took over um instead of being a victim and decided to get therapy and coaching and talk about it and lisa and i started talking and talking and talking and talking and talking and navigating our way through how to be married again because we got married right after Bible college, all the way through seminary, all the way through ordination, all the way through ministry. We were together hip to hip. And um, and then all of a sudden, she decided to go and get her nursing degree at 48 years old. I was without a job. Uh, our kids were gone. We had to file for bankruptcy. You know, you name it. It was like the perfect storm. And so our relationship, uh, we're, we're doing better now than ever, but it took a couple of years of hard work and negotiations to figure out how to stay married. It's hard also when there's a, a balance shift, when one person is making money, the other person isn't just to, in terms of feeling that you're supporting each other, you know, I mean, just there's so many emotions tied in with those changes. Uh, and so for her to say, I think you need therapy. And it's, it's, I'm sure it was not what you were expecting to hear, but it seemed like it was a wise decision. I think going back to what you're talking about, about everyone being the same and sort of that the language is different, you know, being able to use your words, be able to find the language to express how you're feeling. Cause I also come from, unfortunately, a tradition of freezing, having been in a relationship where I got very quiet a lot of the time. And I just heard this weird sound in my head, like a buzzing sound in my head, like I went somewhere deep and I didn't even hear my own thoughts. And it was very interesting to find the language. Again, it's reminding me of something I learned recently about the the term abracadabra, that it comes, they say, from the Hebrew abracadabra, which is I create as I speak. Abera uh, is like from Brasheet, the creation story, the beginning, and kid Dabera, Dabera is to say or to speak. So I love this is like a theme, like the magical theme of words of you creating as you speak, and even in your own healing, being able to 
say what's on your mind and what's hard and finding the words for it. Boy, that's powerful. Yeah. In fact, I don't think Lisa said, I think you need therapy. I think she said, you need therapy. (laughs) It's funny because Lisa and I have often gone for marriage counseling and things like that. And I think that's one of the reasons why our marriage is so strong after 43 years is because we put a lot of work into it and invested in it. Things like therapy and reading and conferences and workshops and seminars and all that kind of thing. But it's funny because whenever we'd go to a marriage counselor, after a while, the marriage counselor would say, okay, see you next week. Lisa, you don't need to come. I just need to talk with (laughs) you. Yeah. So, which is, you know, pretty accurate. but I, I, you know, that's the that's the real truth. There is um, being able to talk. I mean, like I said, after I left the ministry, and not just the ministry, I left the church. I left the church and the community, and it was so devastating. I thought I was doing okay. Like I said, I thought it was fine. This is after a year, but the, in fact, I wasn't feeling anything. And there's a big difference between being fine and not feeling anything. And when Lisa said you need therapy, it's because she saw I wasn't I wasn't an emotion an emotional being like I should be. And there was no attunement or emotional connection anymore. And and because I was frozen. And the only way that thaws is by looking at it and talking about it and, and so that it warms up again. And uh yeah, it's uh, it's a uh, that's powerful. I didn't know that about Apocadabra. that has Jewish origin origins, so that's really cool. But that but that that's true. Like speaking something into being, like speaking something into reality, and that was the one of the main things I talk about with people is write in your journal, talk about it with somebody, like talk about your journey. What do you want? That was. One of my mentors after I left the church was like, well, David, I, I was talking with him. I was like, I just don't know what to do. And they're like, well, David, what do you want? I couldn't even answer that question because I didn't know what I wanted. I wasn't allowed to want, you know, and uh, just like those kids, they weren't allowed to draw anything. They had to draw de- devils. And so I didn't know what I wanted. How inhuman is that? And and um, it took me a long time to figure out, hey, it's okay to feel. It's okay to desire things and want things and to make a plan and, you know, to have money and, you know, you know, all this and make art and, and all that kind of thing. It was pretty profound. It is really profound. And going back to the the power of language when you create things and say things into being, it's also true in the negative, as you were talking about before, right? That somehow there was something abnormal about you, you know, but no, you were just you, but you didn't fit into that box as you were talking about being in a box. And there are a lot of people who are raised in religious environments or just home environments where they are really made to feel that there's something wrong with them. They are just pathologized over and over, but they're just them. And sometimes it's the black sheep, the one who stands out, the one who's different, is the one who sees things, the one who is not going to go along, the one who steps back and notices or takes the time to want to follow what they want to do that could be different than what the expectation is. And so I'm wondering just how you address the self-talk 
of, you know, what's wrong with me uh, and to switch it to it's me and it, I'm okay being who I am. That takes practice. I mean, uh, like, like I said, when, when I left the ministry and when I left the church in 2010, I knew right off the bat, I knew, you know what, I need to go to the University of Life and, and learn from scratch like how to be me, to embrace myself, to think positively about myself and speak positively about myself and not con- continually put myself down. Because there, there's a stream in Christianity, which I subscribe to 100%, that is very self-flagellating, like it's self-punishing. You you have to crucify yourself. You have to despise your flesh. You have to, you know, die daily. You have to, you know, all those uh, not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. And, you know, all these things like don't trust your thoughts, don't trust your feelings, don't trust your body, don't trust money, don't trust like all these kinds of things. And I knew if I'm going to make it in this world, uh, I need to start all over and go to the University of Life and and heal myself of these afflictions <laughs> that I that I had I was complicit in afflicting myself with. And it took some time and I'm still there. I'm still working on it because those beliefs are so deeply embedded it's almost like a part of your dna it's like i compare it to and for people who've been in high control churches or communities or whatever they'll understand this but i compare it to like a brain tumor that's not just a lump it's it's got tentacles that go all through every aspect of your life and it's inoperable you know it it feels like it's inoperable because it's just so entangled and everything but it can be done. <laughs> you can shrink that. You can shrink that. And it's not by radiation, but it's by rewiring your brain and teaching yourself and speaking to yourself that you're okay and that you are you have the right to be you and you can fall in love or you can be strong or you can be successful or any of these things and and you can draw anything you want you know and and it it it's this self you you can actually rewire your brain apparently physically even you know and and recover i'm not saying that you know even still it's been what 13 years since i left and there's still echoes right every once in a while there will be an echo and just recognizing that and telling it to be quiet and speaking in the opposite spirit it's it's work but that's what spiritual growth is it's it's work it's hard when you're needing to rewire but you i think you can can redo the the neural pathways but it takes a lot of repetition and it takes sort of believing the new message just like other messages you were given that also were repeated over and over until they got embedded but especially if they were fear based you're going to get very embedded and you're going to be worried about giving them up. I see that come up in my practice with people who self-sabotage, don't know why they keep doing it, because they there is something inherently in them that doesn't feel deserving of good things or of success, or they 
they find a very controlling partner because at their core, they still believe they need to be kept in line, that they can't trust themselves. There's so many origins, right? It's really quite incredible. I was an, I was an expert in self-sabotage. In fact, it's, it's one of my skills uh, that I still have to work with. Uh, because I self-sabotaged all the time when I got too close to success or some money or or happiness or whatever, uh, self-sabotage, because you can't be too happy and you can't be too successful and you can't be too proud and you can't make a scene. You can't stick your head above the crowd. Um, you have to stay humble and meek and mild, you know, not draw attention. And you, you can't have too much money and you can't, you know, all these things. And, and there's all biblical support for all those things, right? And, you know, like uh, for Christians out there in high control communities where, you know, Jesus was on, you know, crowds were following him and then he would disappear and the disciples would find him out in the wilderness. Like, what are you doing? You're all these people, you know, you, you've got something here. And he's like, no, I'm going to go to the small villages out in the countryside. <laughs> They're like, what? <laughs> you know? And and uh, I thought, yep, I'm going to do that. Because <laughs> Jesus did that. So, you know, and then at the height of his career, you know, getting himself killed and everything. You, you know what I mean? It's, I mean, there's a lot of truth in, in that whole story, but I took the parts that sort of encourage self-sabotage because it's theologically and spiritually better, you know, to be lowly. But also, I think that feeds into a predisposition that I had growing up as a child and everything, and, and a teenager where constantly being like, you don't, that's not how you paint, or that's not how you draw, or you're spending too much time alone, or why are you always pouting or brooding? Uh, you think too much, you know, this kind of thing. And so I think a lot of us find theologies that sort of buttress a tendency that we already have in our personalities. And I did. I found that. I found a theology that fit me perfectly. And it was self-sabotaging. Right. Yeah. There, hmm. There's. I, I don't know where this expression comes from. I'm not sure, but I remember someone from another country saying it with an accent. So I hear it with an accent. But that you can't fall off the floor is is the expression. Like just stay there because you can't. Fall. Uh, but then your life is spent on the floor, and is that what you want? Just to be safe. And it's an interesting thing. There are a lot of people who have learned that message. I'm wondering about as now you have really, you know, put yourself out there as a resource. I'm sure you've heard from a lot of people and some people's responses to you, I'm sure, have been compelling and emotional and really interesting. Are there some reactions that you've gotten to you, to your work, to to your art that have stayed with you? Yeah, I, I hear from people all the time. Of course, I get hate mail too, because I'm not, I'm not, I'm unorthodox. In fact, I just posted. Uh, I like posting people's comments that uh, that are really negative. If I find them funny, I'll post them. So uh, yes, this morning I got a comment. David is a heretic. It was a, a big announcement, and uh, so I, I shared that because it's funny. But 
heretic, the literal meaning of the word is uh, somebody who does not subscribe to the widely accepted beliefs. And yeah, that's me. So uh, that's just what it means to, you know, be your authentic self is you, you, you need to find out for yourself. And so I hear from people all the time who are like, I just want to thank you for helping me feel like it's okay for me to be me and that I'm really grateful for the safe place that you provide where we can ask questions and explore and discover ourselves. And, you know, um, and then I hear from people who are trying to recover from purity culture as it pertains to sex, even married couples struggling with their sex lives because of the poison of purity culture on them growing up. And then I'm very affirming as well. So people from the LGBTQ plus community who are so grateful for my cartoons that are affirming and happy and um, speak truth to power and all those kinds of things. So yeah, I get a lot of encouraging reports from people. And it really does my heart good to know that my work is doing some good out there. It, it ha- kind of has a double-edged sword feel to it because on the one hand, it encourages freedom personal freedom. But the negative of that is that's offensive to people who want to control people or think they need to be controlled. So there's that double-edged sword to it where for some it's uplifting and for others it's very offensive because it, you know, it's too liberating. Right. Too liberating. That's interesting. I mean, right. If you want control, right, that is not going to be something you're going to feel comfortable with. And I think there is this sort of inherent sense that people can't be trusted unless they have this very strict codification of rules that they follow by uh, day in and day out. I know people who call, who who say that they're atheists or agnostic will often be asked, because I get asked this, well, what keeps you from killing someone? Well, it wasn't really God to begin with. So uh, it was just because it's wrong and I wouldn't do it anyway. But there is this, I I think within a lot of religious context, people are raised with this idea of an external locus of control. And I think when people leave and they find they actually have an internal locus of control, something that drives them to do the right thing, that also has them stop at a certain point without getting out of hand doing whatever it is, that they don't need, you know, something from outside of them to tell them to stop. And it's a really powerful thing to notice in yourself. Yeah. And that's why I have no... um like I, I use a term called deconstructing when people deconstruct their beliefs. And, and so I use that word quite a bit, deconstructing. And I say, there's only one way to deconstruct and that's your way. So whether you, if you become a better believer or a better agnostic or a better atheist or what, I do not care where you end up. The fact is that you made the decision. You've chosen your path. You're walking your path. You're being your authentic self. So it doesn't matter to me. Where on the spectrum of belief or non-belief you are, that to me is is material because this all connects to that profound moment where it's it's just thoughts. They're just thoughts. And we're still one. We're still connected. And that's the important thing to me is that you, you discover who you are and live that authentically. That takes a lot of courage, though, because 
you're going to upset the tribe you're already a member of or the family or the group or the community or or whatever. And also, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of work to figure out, okay, who is me? Who am I? And I, I want to find that out. Am I a brooder? Am I different? Am I a, not a heretic? You know, am I this or am I that? You know, discover and find out for yourself. It's like I said earlier, uh, when my one of my mentors asked me, what do you want? That was the hardest question that I was ever asked. And it took me a long time to figure out and finally admit, here's the word thing again, creating things with your words. What do you want? And I finally could say, this is what I want. I really want this without feeling dirty or sinful or whatever saying that. And, and so like for your listeners out there, I wonder how many struggle with that question. Like, what do you want? Ask yourself, what do I want? What do I really want? And then speak that into being like, say, I want to be happy or I want to be in love or I want to be rich or hermit or I want to, you know, whatever it is you want to be or, or, you know, what is it that you want? And then, you know, say it and see what happens. I love it. And push through, I think the physiological impact of that moment for you, even if your heart is racing while you're saying it. Yeah. And I think also what's interesting about human beings is that sometimes they might not be given enough permission to change what they want, but that's fluid, I think, because you can want certain things at certain parts of your life, or when you're coming out of something restrictive, what you want might be very small because you might not know it's okay to think big about making big changes and big proclamations. And so I think to give yourself permission to have that change over time, potentially, and that that's okay. You're not going against your word. You're just shifting because you're a human being going through different phases of your development, I think. Yeah, mine, mine changes all the time. I mean, and that's, that's one of the things that I've come to the conclusion about is that I'm very fluid. I'm a very fluid being. And just like the river out here, many streams go through me and my, my thoughts are changing all the time. I'm attracted to different things all the time and uh, reading different things all the time and wanting different things all the time. And that's okay. It's being fine with that because before it, there was always this rigid line I had to walk in order to be righteous or whatever or to be a good disciple or whatever it was. And uh, that line isn't there anymore. It's, it's open ground. And uh, I love that freedom. Yeah, it's really powerful. I think also about water, because water can be very delicate, but over time it can also carve through stone. And it is very, very powerful. Just really powerful image. That's going to stay with me. Thank you for that. We live around water. I live in New Brunswick, Canada, and there's water everywhere. And we're only a few minutes away from the ocean and the effects on the landscape. It's just really, really profound. And we get a lot of water here, a lot of rain. And then in the spring, when the ice melts and there's flooding and it's like water, 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 but the power of water and, and all the sources it comes from, it's just very powerful. And that, that's who we are. That's who you are. That's who I am. That's who your listeners are. We have that kind of uh, power to make things move and to be creative and to be ourselves. I think it's powerful. 
That's beautiful. Just a beautiful, beautiful thought. And I was just going to ask you if there was anything else you wanted to share before we finished up. No, I think I think we've talked about this is not the this is a very unique interview, actually. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed it very much because uh, it's we've gone down some avenues I haven't talked a lot about before. So it's pretty cool. I'm so glad. Yeah, it was really, really lovely to get to know you. Thank you for all that you did share and in entrusting me and the listeners with all of that. It's all very powerful. It's all very human. And I think so many people are going to be able to relate and feel understood and not feel alone with those feelings. So thank you. Thank you for using your words in that way. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Of course. One more thing before you go. It's really good to speak with someone like David who has had these personal experiences, is learned, has studied so much, and has been able to turn something that's filled with, I think, heaviness and trauma into this beautiful space of art and self-expression. When we talk about art as a form of self-expression, it ties us into so much of what we were talking about on the show, about really fully being able to express yourself and what that means, and that you get to be you. And the fact that he has a way of reaching out to communities that have been othered, to minority communities and communities that have really been kept from having a space of safe expression. It's something that he's going to relate well to about keeping yourself inside, not exhibiting anything that would be upsetting to anyone else or that would open you up for any kind of criticism but really keeping yourself well hidden. It's a very hard life when you're walking around hidden. It's a very hard life when there's so much that you want to be able to say and you can't, and there's so much you want to be able to express and you can't. And it gets to the point also of self-hatred, but also as evidenced by so many people who we hear about on this show who learn to hate themselves, not trust themselves. They say that children who are mistreated by the adults around them learn to hate themselves more often than they learn to hate those who did this to them. And it is a very important thing to do when you realize that's not the life you have to be living, and this isn't the way you have to be feeling about you. But sometimes it's not until you leave an environment that you realize it's even possible to feel differently or that you would even believe that there could be people out there who would think you are just perfectly fine the way you are. One of the things also about self-expression is it ties in with something that we were talking about, about language, about the idea of abracadabra being from the Hebrew, the idea of creating something into being, speaking it into being. When we use a particular word, we speak it into being, into our being. We feel it. We feel it in a different way. And, you know, I'm thinking about the video that I've talked about previously that 
was done in the group Heaven's Gate, where they made their final video where they said goodbye to the world before they went to the mothership as they thought they were going, really just before they died. And there was this calm about them as they went one by one or two by two in front of the camera and talked about why they were leaving to go join the mothership. And they had a lot of phrases for death that didn't include the word death. They had a lot of phrases for dying that didn't include the word dying. And they talked about leaving their corporal beings. They talked about going to the mothership. They talked in these terms that felt so interesting and detached, but kind of hopeful and unique and filled with kind of this exciting mystery and relief. And you could see they were calm and their shoulders were relaxed. And some of them had these like sweet smiles on their faces. But I wonder if the language had been different, if they had talked about what was about to happen, that they were all about to die and leave the world, if they would feel differently, if they would have felt differently, if maybe they would have looked upset or worried while talking about it. And maybe for some of them, they wouldn't have gone through with it. It's important to name things as they are. And it's important for people themselves to be able to say, this is my truth. This is what's true about me. This is what's true about my world. I want you to know me. I want you to accept me. But it feels like an insurmountable task when it's never happened before. How would you know it's ever going to happen again or happen even for the first time? And so what I hear time and time again for people who have left groups that were supposed to be a place of great spirituality and love, that they only felt okay once they left. They only really felt that kind of love and acceptance in an unconditional way or less conditional way once they left. So there's hope out there. If you're able to turn that corner, if you're able to leave something that really is holding you back from being you, because that's a sad, disconnected life. And everyone, I think, deserves to have a chance to see what they can become and who they're supposed to be. It was great to talk to David. I hope to talk to him again. Take good care. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www dot podpage dot com forward slash indoctrination.